This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico, I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. Whatever walks there, walks alone. It's a small but powerful line of literature that I first read one Halloween night when I was 12. The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson sparked my imagination and opened my mind to always consider what might exist beyond the realms of known science and understanding. I've experienced things that ever-evolving scientific analysis cannot easily explain. I've explored these subjects in my film and television work, and I'll continue to. Halloween is so many things, but traditionally it's a night that's considered as an open doorway to the unknown. I think we all recognize this holiday as a freedom from the shackles of mediocrity as well as an absolute celebration of all that's strange and unusual. Regardless of the potential invasion of ghosts and goblins in the middle of the night, Halloween was always my favorite time of year. It was a colorful evolution throughout my timeline, beginning with Ichabod Crane and the Headless Horseman, jack-o'-lanterns and fall leaves. Universal monsters, candy corn to candy apples, special effects makeup creations, midnight horror movies, shaving cream and trick-or-treat mischief to ultimately a profound understanding of ancient energies. This very night is and always will be the most wonderful time of the year. So get comfortable, turn the lights down, never mind the sounds coming from the attic the basement or just outside your door. It's only the wind. Later tonight, our special guest is Paul Ellers. In some circles he's known as Mr. Halloween, but many remember him as the madman himself. He played the axe-wielding monster in the 1981 drive-in horror classic Madman, and he knows a thing or two about what lurks in the shadows on October 31st. So, Let's enjoy the night together, and I'll be right back after this commercial break. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors, breathing around 30,000 gallons of air daily. According to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. 
And in some cases, it could be 100 times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths across the world. Clean air is essential in my studio environment as I spend a lot of time indoors making off to the witch. So what's the solution? Introducing an air purifier that captured the attention of established media outlets such as CNN, Money, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold, so your lungs don't have to. Their Ultra HEPA filter that's been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested bacteria and viruses and virtually 100% of particles as small as 0.003 microns. They also feature whisper jet fans, 30% quieter than ordinary air purifiers. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. So head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code WITCH, and, depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to $300 off. Lock this special offer by going to AIRDOCTORPRO.com and use promo code WITCH. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In 1968, George Romero reflected back at the world with his horror classic, Night of the Living Dead. Throughout four decades, from the rising dawn and on throughout land, he continued to inspire our nightmares. Now, three years after his death, George A. Romero returns from the grave with his final masterpiece, The Living Dead, a mammoth novel and his ultimate zombie epic. From Tor Books and co-authored by Daniel Krauss comes George A. Romero's The Living Dead. Find it wherever books are sold. The haunted house. Not a window was broken, and the paint wasn't peeling. Not a porch step sagged. Yet there was a feeling that beyond the door and into the hall, this was the house of no one at all. No one who breathed, nor laughed, nor ate, nor said, I love, nor said, I hate. Yet something walked along the stair, something that was and wasn't there. And that is why weeds on the path grow high, and even the moon races fearfully by. For something walks along the stair, something that is and isn't there.
Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and tonight we're celebrating our favorite holiday. The poem you just heard was from a long out-of-print record that I traditionally listened to every Halloween night when I was a kid. It's called Selections from the Haunted House. It sparked my imagination shortly before I discovered a treasure of horror and monster movies of the day. Halloween felt safe, it was spooky, and I faithfully believed as many kids do in the unknown. But with all the ghost stories and horror movies that I absorbed in those early formative years, nothing prepared me for the real thing. The first year that the real thing came too close to home was the Halloween of 1984. I grew up in the northeastern United States, in the small harbor towns of Northport and Kings Park, New York. I experienced the distinct change of each season, autumn always being my favorite. We enjoyed the typical fairs and fireworks that come with the territory, and it was the most glorious time for movies. Midsummer of 1984 was an explosive, drive-in celebration of horror, fantasy, and science fiction. Gremlins, a cute monster movie about devious little metamorphs, Taking over a small winter town was the hit that summer. I saw it at a drive-in with my family and loved it, but I was already interested in much darker fare. In April of that year, the latest and duplicitously advertised final chapter of the infamous Friday the 13th series, with the central character being a machete-wielding, deformed monster of a man named Jason Voorhees, successfully broke box office records. I saw the trailer on TV and obsessed over the gory images of my favorite Fangoria magazine. This was a time when the dark side seemed exciting, and it was no real threat because I understood it was all for the movies. I would carry around a special effects makeup kit, practicing on family and friends, and I knew how the monsters were made. But the end of innocence came to me that summer of 84, because there was a real boogeyman out there in the woods. This is the story of when Ricky the Acid King met the devil. Like I told you, summertime was simple when I was a kid. We behaved much like the 1980s versions of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. We were constantly outdoors, and a new adventure found us almost every day. We hung out by local ponds, woods, and beaches. We played games of manhunt and hide-and-go-seek until the sun went down and the air was filled with fireflies. It certainly had its magic, and until that summer, for me, murder only existed in the movies. That all changed late one afternoon. I was sitting in my favorite spot by my favorite tree, reading about fictional murderers of cinema in the latest issue of the popular monster magazine Fangoria. I fixated on the images, not entirely or even consciously as a morbid fascination, but genuinely wondering how the special effects artists created it. The dusk that early evening had an eerie glow through the trees. It was the perfect setting for the impending suspense of a horror movie. Suddenly, I heard my grandmother yelling out to me, Christopher, get inside. I could hear fear in her voice. I didn't hear it before that day. I wasn't sure why she was afraid, but I listened to her. I went inside. Once I was in the house, I overheard the conversations of my father, mother, and grandmother. It was over a news report. The body of a teenager named Gary Lowers was found in the Northport woods only a few miles from my home. He was stabbed over 30 times. His head was crushed by a large branch, and his eyes were gouged out of his skull with a knife. This was real. 
it was a very different feeling than the latest chapter of Friday the 13th. After I fell asleep that night, I had a disturbing dream. It was of my father boarding up windows from outside. I was with him, handing him nails, but then suddenly the door slammed, and I was alone. I ran toward the door, but tripped and fell. I looked behind me into the dark, and I could see a figure. A tall, deformed man walking toward me with a knife. I was frozen, and he was getting closer. I could see his face, and the knife slowly moving toward my eye. I awakened suddenly in the night. I looked out my bedroom window, and all I could hear were the nocturnal insects of summer. Not too long after that night, it was discovered that a young man named Ricky Casso and his accomplice, Joey Troiano, were the culprits and killers of Gary Lowers. Rumor had it that Ricky worshipped the devil and practiced demonic magic with a group called Knights of the Black Circle. A satanic panic quickly gripped the town. The things that I loved became the evil scapegoat for this gruesome murder. It was those slasher films and satanic devil music, they said. We all lived only a short drive from the infamous Amityville Horror House, and it's said that Ricky held satanic rituals on the alleged haunted property. Some occultists claim that Ricky was possessed by the same demon that moved Ronald DeFeo Jr. to murder his entire family in the house only a few years earlier. It remains a mystery as to why Ricky really murdered Gary Lowers. On record, it was revenge for stolen drugs. Ricky was called the Acid King by local teens, and he sold LSD at Northport Harbor. It's said that Ricky was on a large amount of the hallucinogen that night, that he was in a total fantasy world while murdering Gary. While he was awaiting his legal fate, Ricky Casso hung himself in jail. It was my birthday, July 7, 1984. The fact is that many thousands of teens who ingested the same ingredients that Ricky Casso did, including the movies, music, and drugs, never harmed a soul. A sensational crime novel by David St. Clair titled Say You Love Satan was written not too long after. There were a variety of popular bands that wrote songs about that night, as well as it being the basis of several motion pictures, including the most accurate by filmmaker Jim Van Beber, titled My Sweet Satan. And that's the story of Ricky the Acid King. Stay tuned for more Off to the Witch. Tonight's guest was first introduced to me through cinema. My parents owned a video store in the 1980s, Norwood Video. In the horror movie section stood a VHS box with the title Madman and a silhouette of a hulking monster holding an axe. 
It was about a summer camp coming to a close for the fall season, and a legendary killer is summoned by a campfire tale. Paul W. Ellers played the lead monster, and luckily I ended up befriending him many years later. Unbeknownst to me, he didn't live very far, in the same town of Northport, and I spent many nights visiting him and his wonderful wife, Eddie. He even played the devious Jack Pruitt in my 2015 motion picture docudrama, Montauk Chronicles. His home is comprised of the most wonderful collection of bizarre antiquities and oddities. Perhaps the greatest Halloween parties that I ever experienced were at the house of Paul and Eddie Ellers, and tonight he's spending it with us. So here's my interview with Madman himself, Paul Ellers. I was lucky in that sense, I think, to be a child of the 50s. And what came along with that were all the films that came out in the 50s. I pretty much saw, I think, every horror film that was available during those years. I got to see Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, when it was released, um, almost all of the William Castle gimmicky films, we saw all of those first run in our theater, uh, which included all the effects and all the emerge and everything that Bill Castle tried to do with uh, getting the audience involved in the film. So that was a very big part of it. Can you um, describe one of Castle's so to speak, tricks that he used to play on the audience? What, what was one that you experienced? Well, okay, the one that I physically experienced <laughs> was watching The Tingler. Okay, they had set up buzzers uh, at the base of some of the seats in the theater. And I remember getting a slight buzzing jolt during that one scene, which was <laughs> actually made us laugh. I, I didn't actually scream, Although I know screaming is what you had to do to make the, the tingler diminish down to microscopic size. But, but it, was, uh, it was just funny. What, I, what, what is more uh, in the forefront of my mind is when we saw House on Haunted Hill. And after the sequence where Vincent Price throws his wife into the acid... And there's a scene, and he throws the other gentleman in the acid. And you see the skeleton rise up out of, out of the, the pit of acid. And you see the skeleton kind of walk towards you. And then from the right side, stage left of the theater, a skeleton came out from behind the curtains and slowly drifted over all these screaming children, including myself. And so you were, you were absolutely immersed in this world. You have this deluge of incredible movies um, really affecting you as a young guy. It's informing your artwork. I'm sure Halloween must have been a big thing for you. Halloween was probably the most anticipated time of year for us. Um, I planned way in advance. I remember the days of, you know, before uh, malls or before big stores like Macy's or anything, they would be your local shops and we all knew who those people were. And you'd go in there 
and we'd wait to see the costume uh, costumes he was going to carry for that particular year. And it was very exciting. And they always had that, you know, it was in that box and it had a clear opening window and you could see the mask, either a witch or a cat or a ghost. And in there would be that folded up costume. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we would do those, but a lot of us did our own stuff. I mean, we tried to work with whatever we had in the house to make it an even more convincing character. So I, I would, we tried those, I would wear those, but after a while I started, you know, learning how to handle uh, certain makeup effects and I would do my own fangs and my own teeth. And you would just wait for Halloween. I remember really early on in waiting for Halloween to happen, uh, my mother had told me a story that I was, she found me in my bedroom on my knees looking out the window. We lived in an apartment building and we were on the fifth floor. So I would open the window and I would lean on my elbows and my hands and look out into, at that time was kind of an orange sky in the city, in Queens. And I was like two and three years old and I would sit there waiting for witches to fly by. And my mother asked me about that. And I told her, it's what I'm doing. I'm waiting for the witches. I know they're coming. You know, and one time she found me asleep in front of the window. So I guess I gave up on it at one point. But uh, And what do you think it was that, that caused that fascination? Or do you remember what it was? Well, I think it was, you know, uh, believing that there was something beyond what was normal for all of us. I was always fascinated with, uh, I don't want to say the dark side really, but even like in, in, in The Wizard of Oz, okay, I was more intrigued with the Wicked Witch of the West and the Flying Monkeys than I was with Dorothy. <laughs> you know, and uh, it just seemed amazing to me to have those powers and that ability and and to be able to do the things she could do and tossing fire around uh, at that scarecrow. I mean, it, it, there was a whole mystique and unknown, forbidden kind of quality to that dark side, to, to the witches and the magicians and the sorcerers and the conjurers. That was something that always amazed me. And, uh, you know, it still does to this day. And sometimes people are often, people have the misconception that people who love horror or dark, darkly themed artwork or movies or even music are also people who revel in violence, which isn't the case. But I do have a question. Um, and if it's too personal, I totally understand that you don't want to answer it. But when you were a kid or, um, preteen, the time that you were really enjoying horror movies and, and truly, um, you know, in your formative years, were you ever confronted with any type of real violence that made you reflect on all the things you enjoyed? Oh, yeah. I, you know, we lived uh, in Queens and not far from the Jamaica Avenue L. And there are times, that, you know, we had gangs around at that time. I would see guys fighting. Um, I saw a guy stabbed when I was about five and I remember my mother pulled me away from that and it really disturbed me. 
Um, you know, it's one thing you see it in the film and it's a movie, you know, it, it's fantasy. But to see violence done to another human being really upset the hell out of me. And we would even, I mean, I have some grisly things that happen. I remember crossing Jamaica Avenue with my mother um, one afternoon and uh, above us was the Jamaica Avenue elevated train. And we heard screeching of brakes and some screams. And I'm crossing the street with my mother. And someone had been struck by the train. And his forearm fell in front of us. And I was four or five at the time. And it was like, oh, my God. You know, there is when you see the real thing, it really goes deeply into disturbing you. Okay, you can, you can accept all kinds of extremes on the screen, but when you see stuff from reality, it really starts to hit you that, you know, this is not what I'm out to do. You know, I, I do not take any pleasure in that. Uh, we, I think we, all of us enjoy it maybe on the screen because it exorcises whatever demons we may have at the moment or stresses, but when you see it in reality, it's very different. Did you think of that sometimes, let's say, when you saw the heavier films like Hammer films and the violence and that? Did, did that somehow ever bring back that real moment for you? It didn't. didn't it, I didn't equate it with that as much. Um, you know, as films became more and more realistic in terms of how violent they were, you know, you, would st you couldn't help but start to compare it to things in reality. Uh, you know, but uh, I, th I think that the violence on the screen, it was always in a very different place. You know, we would still have dreams that would be intense. I remember having a lot of uh, nightmares as a child, and these things would repeat themselves in nightmares. I, I would see some of these things, like the arm. I saw that in a dream. Um, that type of thing would recur, okay? So, yeah. So I remember that happening. It, so you experiencing that didn't ruin horror movies for you because they're so different from each other. Yes, it didn't. Um, there, was, there was something about the horror films. I was able to put it in the right context for what I was watching. Okay. And, uh, you know, I was able to separate it. I mean, there really might be people that can't do that. That, that can't separate those two things from the fantasy and the reality of what they're seeing on the screen. Those kind of people I worry about, <laughs> you know, where to them that's normal. But no, to me it was not normal. This episode is brought to you by Undeniably Dairy. Dairy farmers are more than farmers. They're climate caretakers. They see water as a precious resource. Most farmers recycle water up to four times, from chilling the milk to irrigating the crops. And some even use technology to turn manure into renewable energy. To learn more about what dairy farmers are doing to make their farms more sustainable, visit usdairy.com. 
This episode is brought to you by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club is fighting for a chance at promotion. These two Hollywood stars lead a team in the midst of history in the making, while dedicated staff and supporters hold on to a dream of returning the team and this working-class town in Wales to glory. FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres September 12th on FX. Stream on Hulu. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Let's let's move into because I know that you were inspired by magic, not just magicians on stage, but actual, you know, actual magic. Do you believe that there are and and we don't have to get too into your real personal beliefs, but just as a general rule, do you believe in universal energies and and that people can manipulate them with with certain intention? Having an interest for for years in trying to get to uncover some of the hidden secrets about um, various various spiritual beliefs, and I always thought there was more, um, as 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 it is in Shakespeare, there are more things in heaven and earth ratio than are dreamt up in your philosophy. Um, Always believed that. I always believed that something else was at work. And it became kind of an obsession to see to what lengths the human mind could manipulate things, or if it could even do that in reality. And I got involved with a number of groups over the years to just kind of sit in and see what they believed uh, and see if there was anything I could glean from their beliefs that I could hold true to myself and 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 keep uh, keep something that would make sense to me and and be something I could use moving forward. A lot of times, for me personally, I there's kind of a spidey sense within yourself, some of us, that you know when something rings true and when it doesn't. And I had an awareness when people were talking about things that I just thought were just not true. What I'm hearing from these people is their own egos, their own desire to control people. Uh, I didn't agree with any of that. It was mostly what could be done to focus the energy of our own minds and how much could be gotten from having an understanding of what we could put ourselves through. Um, Years ago, I used to uh, go off into the woods, and I would spend sometimes almost the entire night alone and just trying to perceive everything that was around me and to have more of an affinity with the darkness, an affinity with the night. For some reason, 
I have always been able to create better at night. Um, and most of my writing that I do, my, my knife designs, all of that, I usually do in darkness, you know, uh, when the sun goes down. It's just a stronger time for me. And so with the same perspective, do you believe that Halloween night, as it's said in tradition, is a, is a powerful night for that as well? Oh, I think so. I, I think we've, we've seen that. I've seen it myself over the years. Um, interestingly, so many different civilizations have similar uh, festivals at the end of the growing season and all around the world. There was a time when people would bemoan the passing of the sun and the days getting shorter. And uh, usually at harvest time, when the final harvest was brought in, um, people would do things to symbolically draw back the sun, bring the sun back, the warmth of the sun back to to uh, help the growing, the fields, to do all of that. And when the days would get shorter, there was, at that time, during the end of October, at least in the, in the Celtic countries um, and Northern Europe, um, what they would do is on Halloween night, which back then uh, the Celts uh, called Samhain, and it was considered the the Celtic, the Wiccan New Year was normally Samhain, and that was Halloween. And it was a time when the veils between both worlds, the living and the dead, the dark and the light, were be very thin. And it was believed at times like that, that we could reach out and contact ancestors, people that had gone before us. And in many different uh, civilizations, they would, for instance, like uh, Day of the Dead in Mexico, they would make the sugar skulls and foods and bring them to the graveyards and cemeteries in honor of the dead that had passed. And they would leave foods on the graves. Um, in, in Ireland and in the Celtic lands, um, the belief that the veil was thin between the living and the dead would have them also leave, leave, uh, leave things out for uh, ancestors that may come visiting their homes or close to their homes. They also would dress up in more frightening uh, costumes in an attempt to frighten off any negative demonic forms or any negative energy that would be coming near their homes. They would try to frighten them off with that. And I think a lot of uh, uh, what we do with Halloween costumes is, is a lot of that. I think it's represented pretty much by what they did in, in those years. When, when the Irish came to the United States, we did not have a Halloween uh, during the middle of the 19th century. It's when the Irish came here and they brought their traditions with them. And with that tradition was, was Halloween. And uh, it, it just caught on. People enjoyed it. And uh, 
it it became the holiday it is today, where unfortunately with uh, with COVID and our our current plague, uh, it makes it rough because we always wait for a Saturday uh, Halloween, which is going to be this year, and we get two moons. So we get our our full moon in October and a blue moon. The second moon is later in the month. So it's a very magical time. I suspect it could be measured scientifically. I mean, you know, there could be some kind of, uh, through quantum science, influence on a subatomic or molecular level from the human mind. You know, um, it seems like it's in the world of the mystical, but it's so ancient. There's so many different cultures that believe in that type of influence that I wonder sometimes why there are people are so quick to disbelieve it. I I think it's out of fear. I think that people generally fear the unknown and avoid it. And I think that mankind felt more comfortable in, in the early days of our development, relying on a shaman or a sorcerer or high priest to be the person who did all the work. They would, they would carry on in their village, carry on with their people, and they would turn to a wise man, a sorcerer, to advise them and to do things to help out the village. Later, um, when the church was established, it, of course, was the church that tried to demonize all the gods of whatever pagan peoples they conquered. And uh, it's something that happened in almost every place where Christianity spread throughout Europe. Um, when, they, when the Romans went into uh, the Celtic lands and then ultimately they turned Christian, um, what they tried to do, the Christian church at that time, to get a better acceptance on uh, what they wanted to bring in with with Christianity, they would turn and make many of the the gods of these people would become the demons now with the new religion of Christianity. Many of those things that they worshipped and prayed to, they conveniently turned them into demonic forces. Uh, a lot of it too was done out of fear. Because, as we all know, the church is very fast to strike terror into the hearts of believers that if they dare to pursue any kind of what they'll consider a dark form of uh, teaching, that it is demonic, it's from the devil, all of that. Um, and it's very interesting, too, because... The, primarily, the, the pagan uh, gods at the time, the Celts, had a very strong female goddess uh, that they prayed to for fertility, for the, the, the crops to do well, for, for uh, many issues where they would pray to a feminine goddess. And it worked out very conveniently when Christianity came in to take this goddess, and now represent her as Mary, the mother of God. So it was kind of it was kind of a smoother transference of power. But there always were those 
who did not embrace the new ways. And they found that they could work in the old forms of belief that were based more on magic and the elements in air, fire, fire water, and earth, the winds, things like that. And uh, especially people in agricultural societies, they had a reason to want rain, to believe in rain, to believe in the harvest, and to uh, hope for and wish for all these things to happen. Many times, of course, they would, they would sacrifice animals and the like uh, to bring about a good harvest and to satisfy and make the gods happy. But that in time changed when the church became the dominant force in the world. Um, they, I think, were very threatened by any force outside of their beliefs, outside of the organized church. And we see what happened throughout history with that. When you had a woman or men who still practiced uh, possible pagan rites and worked with animals, worked with uh, herbs and things that could be found in the wild, that was you know, deemed witchcraft. And those people became a threat to the organized church and so much of a threat that they were often slaughtered. I've seen the same uh, religious persecution even in modern times against the holiday that we're celebrating tonight with the same fear that it's opening up doors to demonic energies and things like that. And I think uh, much like it, depending on what you believe, if you believe that this is a demonic night and that doors are opening up evil, and if you acknowledge it as a good thing, this holiday, um, I think your belief can conjure up a lot of negative energy. I think you're the catalyst for the power. Do you believe that's correct? I certainly do. And, and people are very fast to label something as dark or evil. And I like to think that if we talk about natural powers that are in the universe, um, if we look at electricity, and I mention this often, um, the same ele electricity that can keep a, uh, a heart-lung machine going, that can keep blood pumping through a person after surgery, the same electricity that can be used to save and to, uh, like with a defibrillator, can be used to stimulate the heart and bring it back. That electricity, you would not deem that to be the good or evil, okay? It's, 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 it isn't those things. It's not a, a good or an evil thing. Electricity, which can be used for all those things to save life, can be used to electrocute a prisoner, okay? That doesn't make the electricity evil or dark. It's, it's a power that's there, I believe, in the universe. That power can be drawn upon and can be directed. And it can be directed for good or evil, but I think the good and the evil fall mostly in the application of human beings. And I think it's more good or evil human beings that use this energy for their benefit. They can use it for good. Or they can use it for what so many people call evil. 
but I think it all, it all depends on the I, it all depends on humanity and how it's it's focused. I, I suppose the same can be said about horror movies and dark subject matter and even weaponry, which you're a weapon designer, but you you have a very positive outlook in it, and you're not a pro-violent person. And many people that I know who handle and own weapons or even design them, oddly enough, you know, are not violent people. And I, is it the appreciation of the art of something, uh, the history of something? It doesn't necessarily mean that you're somebody who uh, is suggesting that everyone should wield a weapon or be some kind of violence. Exactly, or worship sure. violence in any way. Sure. I, what I did with my art and my design work and what they've labeled fantasy knives, which unfortunately today has almost become a negative way to look at it. There was a time when myself and the men I work with, Gilhib and Paul Fox back in the day, um, what we did artistically was very new. And what I did when I would design a weapon or a sword or a knife, what I did is I would always draw gnomes and elves and fairies and all these interesting characters in, in my fantasy artwork. And I loved, if I had an army of elven people, I would design some exotic weapon that they would hold in their hands when they went into battle. What I did with, with fantasy knives is I basically took those weapons out of my cartoons, drew them life-size, and would then send them to several makers that I work with in the world who would then take that, interpret it, and actually physically cut and grind and make a three-dimensional live piece of steel that would be based on those drawings. That's how I started with it. And for, for gosh, from 1982 or three through uh, to almost 2000, uh, we had done many, many, many of these designs. And the nicest thing that was ever said to me about my work, and I'm talking about going back to 82, 83, through the 80s and into the 90s, when we had some very high-end collectors around the world who would buy these pieces. And they, personal little thing here, I can't even afford my own lives. They go for thousands of dollars. But we had collectors, thank goodness, that could appreciate the art and style, and they would invest in buying these pieces. One, one collector said to me probably the greatest compliment that I ever heard about my work. Again, early on, since that time, they have been worked over and redone and redesigned by Asian companies until they became something cheap. Back then, they were not cheap. Back then, there were daggers and swords. There were hunting knives, bowie knives, knives for the military, but fantasy knives, knives where you would take the steel, the handle, the guard, and start to change the shape into almost like a living character. My things were based often on, on insects and things that I could see in nature. The, the gentleman that collected uh, 
a great many of my pieces. Uh, who had them in a collection it was fascinating. I went, went, I went to his house once, and he had this almost James Bond kind of room in his basement where he turned this lock and key, and the steel door opens up. And I'm looking into this room with all these fabulous pieces of art that he owned. And my knives were there on display, usually raised off the ground on a pedestal with very interesting lighting on it. And I just never saw them that way. They looked just so amazing. But what he said to me, and I spoke to him not long ago, and he said, it's still true. He said, Paul, I have been to all the armories around the world. He was a concert pianist. He went to all the armories, the museums, in various towns throughout Europe and throughout the world. And look at the weaponry that throughout history that was at these locations and museums. And he said to me, Paul, I have never in all those years seen anything in those museums that look like your work. And that that was just the coolest thing anybody had. That made it all worthwhile for me. But That's wonderful. It, it seems like the people that can appreciate the weaponry the same way you appreciate and conjure up and imagine the design of it are very emotionally and historically mature. And it seems like people who are just so scared of it and are so against it are, are very ignorant of, of history and art and design. Yeah, I, I, did a, I did a thing for the Boy Scouts locally one night, and I brought in some knives to show. And my wife, Eddie, was sitting in the audience uh, in front of someone, and, and I was talking about the same things I'm talking about now. And this woman was, I can't stand knives. What? All these knives. It's terrifying. Eddie turned to them and said, uh, how do you cut your food? So that that kind of like shut her up immediately, but that's the greatest comeback. Yeah, Eddie's a wonderful person. Oh, she is amazing. And if it wasn't for her, I truly would not be here today. She uh, she herself is an artist and a graphic designer. She's a photographer, Uh, and uh, we when we met each other, I uh, my library and all my work was as I said, fantasy related, like. Elves, fairies, gnomes, creatures of the woods, all of these things. And I I met her, and I had been divorced by that time, by the way. Um, I met her, and suddenly I see in her collection, she had kind of the feminine version of all the stuff I collected. So what we did is we kind of combined both of uh, our collections of art. And and Chris, if you've been at my home and you've seen the things we have. So with all of that fascination, rewinding back for a second to the time, and I, I guess it was somewhere around 1980, 81, uh, you had already had this interest at that time, and you were about to uh, play your, to date, your most famous role in motion picture. Uh, it was Madman, the main character, the main monster, the killer, and the, and the drive-in horror movie classic Madman. Can you tell me how that happened? Yes, yes, I will. Let me just say, uh, lore of the campfire, telling of his horror, lost in the woods with the madman and the stars. Don't laugh at the tale. 
heed if you call him. The legend lives. Beware the madman Mars. I don't think I've ever done that before. Go, oh, look out, look out. Yeah, I was, it was 1979. I was out in uh, East Mauritius, Long Island. My friend Jim Grillo, who was uh, a farmer and also was a sheriff at that time, uh, he had a fella come over that uh, his wife had gone to college with. And that person was Joey Giannone, the director of Mad Men. And he met with me one night and we talked about horror movies. And we talked about what we thought was scary and what worked in a film and what didn't work in a film. And he knew at the time that I was primarily an illustrator, okay? And as time went on, I got a phone call from, from Joey, and he and Gary Sales, who, who is the producer of Mad Men, they had uh, bought a little office uh, on 7th Avenue in Manhattan, and they had me come in to do the one sheet, the illustration originally for Mad Men. And... They told me at the time, you know, we were thinking of something like a Grimm's fairy tale, you know, where you had these woods and gnarled trees and and uh, the character of Madman would be maybe in silhouette and would be a very classy look. So I went home and I did a version of that. Uh, so wait, you were hired as the poster the designer. poster designer for Madman. Yes. And uh, I, I, do, I did the drawing. I brought it in and showed it. They loved it. And uh, I was describing to them originally how I saw the madman character uh, standing next to a tree and crouching and twisted over and his hands gnarled and holding an axe. And Joey and Gary kind of looked at each other and they said, what are you doing for the next two months? And I went, get out. I was thrilled. I mean, they had seen, they saw a seven foot tall guy. They saw all kinds of guys. They, and back then I had done a lot of weapons work with swords and bokens and axes. I did a lot of martial arts and karate. So I was raring to go, man. I was, uh, I was ready to do it, and they gave me my first shot, really, and I was thrilled about it. I couldn't believe it because here I am. We talked earlier about all the movies I watched as a kid in the theaters and, and all the characters and Christopher Lee and, all, and, uh, and Oliver Reed and Curse of the Werewolf and how much I adored all these people. And it turns out here I am, Mr. Horror, is now going to be starring in a horror film. I couldn't believe it. I was blown away. And uh, we had some meetings. We talked about the character, what he was going to look like. I had helped out with that. I did some sketches. And uh, and uh, we, we had done a mask. Uh, I had my face uh, cast. And uh, they, uh, they did a, a sculpt over that. And I remember Joey and I, we went to go look at the character and see what it looked like. They had, uh, they had done claws, hands. They did the, a head. And by the way, we only had, and you as a special effects guy, realized what a nightmare this could be. We had one head. <laughs> one head. 
And if, God forbid, anything went wrong, we would have been in a lot of trouble. We had one hand. For the first two weeks, I had one hand. And Joey laughs about this because when he was cutting in the early scenes, it was just me and my hand. You know, it was kind of like Creature from the Black Lagoon with dun dun dun. You know, he puts his hand over the boat. I made the best use of that hand that I could do, man. He said, reach around the tree. And I went, you know, every time I did it, I flexed the fingers and I'm reaching her. And it went, he went nuts when he was editing. He said, enough with the freaking hand, you know, but we only had that. We only had the hand. And uh, finally, more of that came. And a story I've told is when we're shooting one of the first scenes where TP is hung and, uh, you know, I walk in from the woods there barefoot and Jim Mamel, our, our DP, is, is looking at me walking in and he stops and he starts laughing. And I, we're all like, what? And he says to Joey, take a look through the lens for a minute. What do you see? And they're looking at my feet. I have like nine and a half inch feet. He says, this looks like a ballerina dressed in overalls. <laughs> so we had to, we had to order feet. So they got the, you know, we had to wait for the feet to come in and oh God. And we would, you know, we would put them on. I only had one set of feet too. And they kind of went up to my calf and, uh, and you know, it, it was crazy because, uh, they had to uh, they had to hot glue these on to seal them up every time. Sometimes they hot glued them to my legs. <laughs> so when I was angry in a scene, there was a reason, you know. So, but we did that, and again, we had the one head. And the one advantage I think I had with the costume is that I was warm as toast in there with all the latex. Every what time I, of year was it? Because I'm I'm under the impression, and I've seen Mad Men a bunch of times since I was a kid. Yes, uh, that that it was cold outside when you were filming. It was. We started in uh, October, okay, and it was supposed to be. You know what a weird camp, right? These kids. There's only five kids in the camp. What kind of camp is this? But it it's like for special children, right? You remember that and. And uh, it was in the fall. It was some reason a camp in the fall. And the story we always talked about is that the art department, you know, we were it was supposed to be the end of summer, and leaves were starting to go orange and brown and curl up, and and they were out there. The effects team was out there painting leaves green and trying to have <laughs> have have just be this cohesive thing about all the the matching backgrounds. But, so we started in October. We we actually went long. We went till, gosh, right before Christmas. Uh, we went in. And did you shoot on Halloween night? Uh, we did not shoot that night. I was in the dining room. We stayed at the Fish Cove Inn, and uh, all the all the actors. We were in there on Halloween night, and our cook. Uh, he what he did, and he also owned. Uh, it was Tony and Susan, I think, uh, that owned the the place, the the cabins and the main house, and he made fish uh, skin on a put it on a like a cookie sheet and made them look like snake skins. And he served them one night, and I was I was in the dining room with the actresses and I was with uh, 
Alexis. I was with Galen. And she and I were cutting pumpkins and carving out pumpkins and having a wonderful Halloween night of doing all these things, you know. Um, that was great fun. That we, and then at one one point, I think we were improving between me and Galen and the and the other actresses, and Jan Clare and Harriet uh, and, and and Jimmy Steele, uh, Tommy Candela. We started doing improv scenes that we were all crazy people in an institution, and we were playing off that. We had a wonderful Halloween night actually on set. Okay, which was a hell of a lot of fun, and but we ran a long time. Uh, sadly, John Lennon was shot while we were filming one of the days, and we put up all these black drapes on the set. No one could film that night. We were all very, very. Did you think at that time, forty years later, we would be talking about this? And in fact, Madman is more popular than ever right now. I know, isn't that nuts? I mean, I uh, when we had a at the Cinema Arts Center in Huntington, when Joey was still alive, uh, he passed away not long after that. But we had a showing of Madman in early two thousands, two thousand three, four, and we had a showing in uh, in the Cinema Arts Center, and all of these kids showed up. I mean, kids. Guys in like their 30s and so forth that loved the film. And they're all there watching the movie and they watched the commentary and all of this. And we had no idea. And Joey said to me afterwards, he said, Who knew? Who knew we had this kind of a following? And um, it's been wonderful to see it. I mean, I've told people that for me, I was 30 when I did the film. And all my friends who were into horror were also about 30 years old. We had gone through all the horror movies of the 50s and 60s and, and uh, you know, and Texas Chainsaw and everything. We, By the way, my friend Larry and myself on Broadway wanted to go see Texas Chainsaw Massacre when it opened. And we pooled together our money and we did not have enough money. So Larry and I went to the Red Cross and we gave blood. And got paid for giving blood. And this is how we were able to get in and see Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, my God. Were there any protests to the violence when you were making the movie? Did anyone ever object and say, I'm not sure why I'm here? Yes, there was, uh, there was a crew member that, for some reason, decided to come up to me whenever he had a chance and would say to me, whisper to me, you love this, don't you? You love slaughtering these people and cutting them up and and I would say to him what's wrong with you this is this is a, a story it's a campfire tale it's, no this is not the thing that I dream about doing and if I remember right I mentioned it to Joey he got fired he was gone okay this is not the thing to ask people while you're making the film you know did that ever happen since? Because I know um, Tom Savini, the special effects makeup artist uh, who worked on Friday the 13th and Creepshow and a million other classic horror films, had dealt with a lot of backlash and people would you know, ask him, how dare you do this? Especially movies like Maniac. Did you ever come across anybody down the road that knew you were a killer in a horror film and challenged you with that? 
I had been asked at parties when people found out and, uh, you know, and they would, they would talk to me about it and they said, this is, what do you, you get a thrill out of doing this? I said, no, I kind of got a thrill about being paid by the week to do it. And, you know, and got a chance to actually be in a horror film, the very thing I loved as a kid, but whether or not I, I, I took any, uh, any solace from playing a murderer or anything like that? I, I always tell people no. No. And that's not why I did it. There's a huge difference. As if anyone plays uh, a character in Shakespeare, there's a lot of violence in Shakespeare, biblical stories. You know, um, any anybody that's, that's uh, ultimately uh, uh, strongly religious and then condemns somebody for reading a horror magazine or, or easy comics or watching, you know, gory films, it is not synonymous with people who love violence. It is fake. I knew that since I was a kid, and I believe you knew that as well. You're celebrating story, right? You're celebrating um, uh, elaborate creatures and special effects. Uh, am, I, am I correct on this? Absolutely. I mean, it's... Uh... There was such a love of seeing these movies when we were kids. I mean, there was nothing like it to be in that audience and have the lights come down and and start to show these movies and the feeling it gave you when you would leave there and you went home. If you went home in the dark, you'd have that that anxiety that something was going to happen. And it, it was amazing. Unfortunately, today, if I want to see horror, watch the news, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's tough. I mean, what I'm seeing happening day to day in the world is often so horrible that, you know, we had nothing on those things. I mean, you know, it, it's, I don't know. I don't know. No, the you, world you has- are 100% correct because watching the news has given me the lowest of lows that I've never felt from a horror movie. The last couple of things I want to address, and I, I, you know, it is people are listening to this for the first time on Halloween Eve or Halloween night. Describe, because you know it so well, what is the perfect Halloween night? Lead, tell me how you set it up. What do you do? Well, what we've been doing, my wife, my wife Eddie, and myself, uh, it would be one thing if we had friends come over, which we did for many years, except for this year because of the concern for COVID. And to us, what really would start to hit home is after there was a small party and I would I was always on the ready to go right out when the bell rang and I had to go outside, but people would be drinking and we made food and everybody would be laughing in the house. And finally people would go home. And it was at that moment when things were quiet that Eddie and myself would sit, we would have candles lit, we would have possibly electronic music playing like Tangerine Dream from their early albums. Uh, We would have music playing. We had, as you know, antiques in the house. We have gargoyles. We have sculpture of a mythological nature. And we would light a fire normally and just quietly absorb all of the feeling that was around us 
And we didn't get it that much when the house was full of people. We would look forward, actually, to when people would head home. And we would sit and relax quietly. And at times like that, I remember, too, I would, I would say a few words hearkening back to the ancestors and acknowledge that the night was that thin veil between the worlds. And we would say a few, world, a few words to the darkness and just thank all the spirits that be for having given us health and, and happiness and acknowledge them. A quiet acknowledgement of everything that has passed before us. And the same thing is true at Christmas. We like to do it the same way, quietly, at Christmas. And just just absorb the darkness, absorb the, you know, as, as he says uh, in A Child's Christmas in Wales, I think one of the last lines that, that he says in his poem, his wonderful poem, is uh, he, he's in his bed after the whole... Goings on of Christmas Eve and everything that was happening, Dylan Thomas, and he says, uh, "I said good night to the close and holy darkness, and then I slept." And it would, it would, that would be what would happen. You would go to sleep on Halloween night with just the tingling of all the wonderful experiences you had throughout your life to that point. And I still feel that to this day. You've had such an interesting life so far. You know, when, when we're all leaving this place at some point. What, what do you feel like, you know, all of these observations and everything are just so amazing. And for people that don't do this, you're really missing out on life itself, you know, the, the meaning of life. What do you feel like you'll take with you when you leave this particular existence? I, what I, what I believe over years of, of, of doing this is I try to involve myself in all forms of different spirituality as it's seen throughout the world. And I take from various forms, whatever it is I can glean that I feel works for me and feels good to me. And learning about spirit, learning about possible spiritual survival, learning not to be afraid of darkness, learning to embrace the other world. And I guess my goal would be, what I would hope is that at the, the time of my physical death, what I would want is for my consciousness to remain together from my thoughts and my ability to reason and understand and perceive what I may see after the death of my body, to be able to face that, understand that, possibly even question things that I've wondered about my entire life, to keep that consciousness together after the death of my physical body would be something that I hope very much will happen.
Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I want to thank you for spending this night with me. The theme of this episode is partially a reflection on things we love. Halloween, to me, is a celebration of creativity, freedom, imagination, the unknown and realms beyond. It's not to revel in the darkness of the human soul, but to rejoice in how wonderfully bizarre and unchartered our existence is. It's also a New Year's Eve for many of us, and we celebrate throughout the entire month of October. Rarely do I meet a sinister soul or person that knows the joys of Halloween like we do. That's for the stiffs who could never know, the politicians, those who are filled with only greed for the dollar and for power over people and nothing else. So, on this Halloween night of 2020, know that you are untouchable. They can't take away your imagination and wonder, your creativity and love for a holiday that will exist long after they're all gone with the autumn wind. I wish you all a happy Halloween. I'm going to lead out with the first full paragraph of Shirley Jackson's classic novel, The Haunting of Hill House. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years, and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wooden stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. Media Podcast.